Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. And if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Henry Wingblade used to say that Christian personality is hidden deep inside of us. It is unseen, like a soup carried in a tureen or a bowl high over a waiter's head. No one knows what's inside unless the waiter is bumped and he trips. Just so, people don't know what's inside of us until we get bumped. But if Christ is living inside, what spills out is the fruit of the Spirit or our character. To say that we're living in bumpy, bumpy times right now is an understatement. The whole world is getting bumped and bruised, and everyone's soup tureen is getting dumped over and the contents exposed. Our character is being tried, tested, and shown to all. Character is made up of the qualities, ethics, and convictions that shape who you are and the decisions you make and how you act. Character matters. Philip Brooks says this, Character may be manifested in the great moments, but it is made in the small ones. And Plutarch says this, Character is simply a long habit continued. Character is important at all times, but now more than ever we are getting bumped and the world can see the true color of our character. Our character needs to be the kind that shines out the glory of God during the bumps of life, leading with godly authority given to us, humbly living under God's authority over us, and living with great faith today. And all of that is shown in our text today. Let's read from Luke chapter 7 verses 1 through 10, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master highly valued, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Coming from Luke's Gospel, uh, we have this story written to us, shared with us from Luke, who is writing his Gospel with great concern for the Gentile audience. In Luke's day, anybody who was not Jewish was called a Gentile, and Gentiles were considered outsiders to the faith. So Luke is going to great lengths to share the good news of Jesus with Gentiles. They don't have to be outsiders anymore, and that reason alone makes this story critically important to Luke's sharing of the gospel. 
The exchange between a centurion, who is a Gentile, and Jesus shows us that those who are considered to be outsiders to the faith can have a faith greater than all of Israel. They have lessons to teach those who are on the inside. Let's talk about the centurion for a moment. Perhaps you know a lot about centurions, or perhaps you, you know nothing at all, but understanding the role of a centurion and what was expected of them helps us to understand the unexpected outsider described in today's scripture text. He is a Roman soldier. More than that, he's an officer in the Roman army. And because he is an officer in the Roman army, we know that the centurion is not from Israel. Uh, it was not the Roman practice to send soldiers to conquer their homeland and keep it under Roman rule. They would send foreigners to those lands to keep them under control. So he was a foreigner in Israel, a Gentile, one who was unwelcome. He is part of the occupation force. On the surface, when he goes to the Jewish elders and say, please go to Jesus to make this request for me, this should be shocking to us, let alone that the elders would say he is worthy of this request. Roman centurions, they were considered to be the backbone of the Roman army. Traditionally, uh, they were an officer who was in charge of a hundred soldiers. Now, through history, this number changed. Sometimes it would be more than a hundred soldiers. Sometimes it would be less. It just depends on where they are sent to uh, conquer and rule. And, and sometimes it just depends on how many soldiers are available. Uh, but it's roughly a hundred soldiers that these centurions would manage. And it would take ten of these groups of, uh, well, centuries to make up a legion, that famous unit that we hear about in the Roman army. The centurions were one of the most important officers in maintaining army discipline and carrying out battle plans. Polybius describes the qualifications of a centurion like this. They must not be so much seekers after danger as men who can command. They're steady in action and are reliable. They ought not be over-anxious to rush into a fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. Centurions were known for their st tough, stalwart character and were known for their loyalty and justice. This reputation seems to bear true whenever a centurion is described in the Bible. And I want to share a few examples of centurions in the Bible with you. Uh, speaking, uh, The first one speaks of of Jesus during the crucifixion. It's a centurion who's who's watching over the crucifixion and as Jesus dies in Luke twenty three forty seven we get this the centurion seeing what happened praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Now maybe that's not the version of that, that text you were thinking of, but I wanted to highlight Luke's version where he says the centurion praised God. What a moment. He's overseeing the execution of what Rome has labeled Jesus as a criminal, and yet he praises God. Surely this was a righteous man. Maybe you're more familiar with Matthew 27:54, which says this, when the centurion and those around him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, and this is centurion proclaiming, surely he was the son of God. To be able to recognize the divinity of Christ in this moment. How powerful that is. One of the first Gentiles to become a Christian is recorded in Acts chapter 10 verse 1. That's a whole chapter really, but we'll just read verse 1 and then verse 22. At Caesarea, 
there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, who was known of the Italian regiment. So that tells us who he is. He's a centurion from the Italian regiment. He lives in Israel. And then verse 22 shares this with us. This with us. The men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. This is no ordinary man, and yet we are shown again centurions to have exceptional character, being revered by the Jewish people, but also having exceptional faith. The last couple examples I want to give you is that are, are of centurions who are repeatedly used to serve as Paul's escorts and protectors in the book of Acts. Acts 23 tells, about, tells us of centurions who take serious the reports of a plot to kill Paul, and the centurions escort him to safely uh, to his next prison destination. In Acts 24, it's a centurion who's ordered to be Paul's guard and caretaker to take care of his needs. In Acts chapter 27, after shipwreck on his way to be tried in Rome, Paul is protected by a centurion. The other soldiers were planning to kill the prisoners so they wouldn't escape, but the centurion who really cares about Paul, protects him and stops that plot to kill him. It's these centurions over and over and over are acting with character in an upstanding way that just makes them exemplary. The Bible shows this to be true, and now we have uh, a centurion in Luke 7, and, and he's the same way. He's a stalwart man of loyalty and justice. Our story is stunning because in many ways, this centurion is one of the last people that one would expect to come to Jesus for help. Let's take a moment and just pile up some of the reasons why he'd be the last one you'd expect to come to Jesus. He is a foreigner, and Jesus is an Israelite. Why would Jesus do any favors for a Gentile? The centurion is a soldier, an officer. He's enforcing rule over Israel, Jesus' people. He represents Roman power over the Jewish people. The centurion is wealthy, and Jesus seems to be caring for the poor, and and he seems to be hard on the Pharisees and Sadducees and the wealthy Jewish leaders. Why would he care about this wealthy centurion? And yet this centurion has exceptional character, and his character leads him to seek God, the God of Israel, for help. Whether the centurion knows Jesus is divine uh, is never shared, but he clearly recognizes that Jesus' ministry is godly and that it is right and good and the surest way to seek the God of heaven to heal his servant. So I want to take just a few moments and highlight three aspects of the centurion's character that we can learn from. And those three aspects are his understanding of authority, his humility, and his faith. The centurion understands the authority given him. He knows his position well. Verse 8, he describes himself as a man under authority. The centurion knows that he is given authority. He knows the authority. Uh, this authority gives him tremendous power to speak a command to his troops and expect that command to be carried out. But he does not simply say that he possesses authority. The centurion says he is under authority. He knows that his authority is less about his greatness and more about the greatness of those above him. He knows that if he is under authority, that his authority, authority makes him a man responsible for those he is over. This is shown uh, first in his care for a servant. When his servant is sick, he doesn't just cast the servant aside, but he goes to Jesus. He goes 
I, I imagine that the centurion has gone to many other places to try to seek for healing, but now he is going to Jesus to look for miraculous healing. He feels responsible for this servant. It is also shown in the centurion's care for the Jewish people. He is in authority over them, but he cares about them. He doesn't just rule over them. He doesn't just see them as bodies to govern or as problems to manage. To manage, He sees a people with a rich heritage. He cares deeply about Israel and has personally paid for the building of one of their synagogues. Because the centurion keenly understands his position of authority, that he is under the authority of those above him and that he has responsibility to those he is over, he goes to Jesus in this tough moment to get the help he needs. He does it out of concern for those he is in charge of. He does it out of his sense of authority and responsibility. True authority will keep you humble. The centurion does not simply throw his weight around when he feels the weight, he actually feels the weight of his office. And we as humans have much authority given to us. Do you realize that you have authority given to you? Just at a very simple level, not, not even as a Christian, but just as a human, we are given life. And that is an authority. To live life. To enjoy life. But not just to possess life, but to have authority in life. We are given this world to live in. We have authority over it. We are given our families and our neighbors authority, and so we are to care for them. I wonder how often we let differences and divisions pile up and prevent us from reaching out to those around us, to those that we might have authority to be responsible for. The centurion didn't let ethnicity get in the way. He did not let social status of wealth get in the way. He did not even let religious difference get in the way. Every indication um, it shows us that the centurion is not converted to Judaism, but he didn't let religion get in the way of seeking Jesus. What are you letting get in the way of wielding your authority to help others? What are you letting get in the way of yourself when you want to help others? Is it old disagreements? Is it hurts? Is it social status? Is it education? Is what is getting in the way? Don't let divisions keep you from helping others. Well, the centurion knows his authority and he wields it well. But then that brings me to the second reason of he ha of his character that is so powerful and so formational that when he's bumped, it spills out and it brings brings glory to God. The centurion knows his his authority. He wields it well, and because of that, secondly, he is humble, strong character has humility built into it. We might think the centurion is throwing around his, his power and his authority, ordering the Jewish elders to go ask Jesus for help. But later we find out that it is humility that keeps him from going in person to Jesus. And it even prompts him from discouraging Jesus to enter his home. In verse 7, he says this, he, his message to Jesus is, is that he did not consider himself worthy to come to Jesus to ask for help. He even says to Jesus, don't trouble yourself with entering my home. The centurion is an authority in Israel. He keeps the peace. He has the legal authority to order around any Israelite. But he has such a reverence for God, for Israel, and for Jesus, that he does not feel worthy to approach Jesus or to let Jesus enter his house. A devout Israelite would never 
enter the house of a Gentile. That's an important detail for us to remember. So it's it's a some sign of respect. He's saying, Jesus, I don't want you to to do what would be against the the Jewish faith. Now we know that Jesus was on his way to enter the centurion's house. That that barrier of him being a Gentile was not uh, a problem for Jesus. But the centurion was humble. He had respect uh, for for God. Um, in some ways, the centurion understands the truth of our position before God better than most of us ever will. He says, I am not worthy for you to enter my house. None of us are worthy to approach God or, or make demands of him. That's the real state of it. Now, the Christian has the right to approach the throne of God boldly in prayer. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 tells us, Let us approach God's thrones in grace throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. But I think we can confuse boldness with entitlement or even just the ability to make demands of God. I think some people approach God with a casual carelessness, wanting answers to prayers and a feel-good religion. But we should boldly approach the throne with confidence, with reverence, with awe, trembling in holy fear. The centurion realizes the holiness of his request and who he's asking for help, and so he acts with humility, understanding his low place despite his authority. So he's humble. The centurion knows authority. The centurion is humble. And third and finally, the centurion under that authority in humbleness asks in faith for the healing of his servant servant. His faith is the linchpin of his character. So I want to take a few more minutes and talk about faith. Faith is so critical in the centurion story. And so I want to talk about faith and some of the aspects of it. The centurion knows his authority, but his faith recognizes the authority of Christ. The centurion has great faith because he recognizes the authority of Jesus. He is willing to trust that authority over his own, and it produces faith. It can be difficult to trust authority other than what you've always known. It's a story that goes like this. For centuries, people believed that Aristotle was right when he said that a heavier object, that the heavier the object, the faster it would fall to the earth. Aristotle, Aristotle was regarded as the greatest thinker of all time, and surely he would not be wrong. Anyone, of course, could have taken two objects, one heavy and one light, and dropped them from a great height to see whether or not the heavier object landed first. But no one did until nearly 2,000 years after Aristotle's death. In the year 1589, Galileo summoned summoned many learned professors to the base of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. He went to the top and pushed off a ten-pound and a one-pound weight. Both landed at the same instant. The power of belief was so strong, however, that the professors denied their eyesight, and they continued to say that Aristotle was right. Faith recognizes authority. Not just what you previously trusted in, but what is really, who really is in charge, who really has power and authority, what is really right. And Jesus, as God's Son, has tremendous authority. The centurion recognizes this. This is perhaps one of the great stumbling blocks for people. They have trouble really understanding the authority 
of Jesus, that everything falls under his rule and reign. There is no situation or circumstance that he does not have authority over. This is especially hard for us when we are in a situation that feels dire, as though it's out of everybody's control. But faith in Jesus starts by recognizing his authority and laying aside what we previously trusted in his place. So what have you previously trusted? What have you tr previously thought was in control? Put Jesus into that place. Trust his authority. That's the beginning of faith. The second part about faith is that it requires, well, trust. Authority is where the power is located in faith, but we have to trust it as well. Certainly the centurion does this. He trusts Jesus. He understands his authority, so he trusts him uh, that Jesus can heal at a distance with just a word. There's a story about a student who was asked to prepare a lesson to teach in speech class. The student was graded on creativity and the ability to drive home a point in a memorable way. The title of the talk was this, The Law of the Pendulum. The student spent 20 minutes carefully teaching the physical principle that governs, governs a swinging pendulum. The law of the pendulum is this. A pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. Because of friction and gravity, when the pendulum returns, it will fall short of its original release point every single time. This is the case. Each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc until it's finally at rest. And this point of rest is called the state of equilibrium. That's where all forces acting on the pendulum are equal. To make his point, the student attached a three-foot string to a child's toy top and secured it to the top of the blackboard with a thumbtack. He pulled the top to one side and made a mark uh, on the blackboard where he let the pendulum go. And each time the pendulum swung back, he would make a new mark. It took less than a minute for the top to complete its swing and come to a rest. When he finished the demonstration, the markings on the blackboard moved down in a smooth arc, proving his thesis, never returning to the original point, but always a little further down, a little further down, a little further down. The student then asked how many people in the room believed the law of the pendulum to be true. All the classmates raised their hand, and so did the teacher. And the teacher started to walk to the front of the classroom, thinking that the class that the speech was over. In reality, the speech had just begun. Hanging from the steel from steel be beams in the ceiling, in the middle of the room was a large, crude, but functional pendulum, 50 pounds of metal weights tied to four stra strands of 500-pound test parachute cord. The student invited the instructor to climb up onto a table and sit in a chair with the back of his head against the cement wall. Then he brought the 50 pounds of metal up to his nose. Holding the huge pendulum just a fraction of an inch from his face, the student said once again, he once again explained the law of the pendulum uh, that he had been applauded for moments earlier, and then he said, if the law of the pendulum is true, when I release this massive metal, it will swing across the room and return just short of the release point. Your nose will be in no danger. After a final restatement of this law, the student looked at the teacher in the eye and said, Sir, do you believe that this law is true? There was a long pause. The teacher was actually sweating. And then after a little while, he nodded and said, Yes, I believe it's true. 
The student released the pendulum. It made a swishing sound as it arced across the room. At the far end of its swing, it paused momentarily and started to swing back. And at that moment when the pendulum started to swing back with those 50-pound weights, the teacher literally dived from the table. The student stepped forward, avoiding the pendulum, and asked the class, Does the teacher believe in the law of the pendulum? And the class all unanimously answered, No. Faith requires trust. Too often, this is our reaction to God. God tells us that he loves us, and then we doubt him. Life looks like a 50-pound pendulum swinging out and then coming back at us. Is there something in your life that you're having trouble giving over to God and trusting him with? It requires us to say that we cannot and that we will trust someone who says they can, God. Centurions are known as people who get things done. They're the backbone of the army. It took some humility for them to go out and ask for help, for this centurion to ask for help. They put their trust in others. And this centurion, he is putting his trust in Christ. Perhaps we need a better dose of that trust in our lives. The third thing about faith is this. It gives God permission. I've met a lot of people who claim to have faith in God, but they've not given him permission to do much of anything in their lives. Right now, God is a gentleman. He does not burst into our lives and make demands of us. He calls out to us. He waits for us to trust his authority and to receive him. It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to altogether give permission. A word we quickly learn in life is mine. And I've shared this before, but I love it, and I'll share it again. It's toddler's law. We've done the law of the pendulum. Now it's toddler's law. This one's a little more funny. Toddler's law goes like this. It's the law of how toddlers work. If it's mine, it's mine. If it's yours, it's mine. If I like it, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I'm playing with something, all the pieces are mine. If I think it's mine, it is. If I saw it first, it's mine. If I had it and then put it down, it is still mine. If you had it and then you put it down, now it's mine. If it looks like the one I have at home, it's mine. And if it's broken, it's yours. And a lot of, the, of us are doing that with God. We look at him and with our lives and say, no, it's mine. But faith, faith means we give permission to God to change our lives. And we say, what is mine is now yours, Lord. One final thing I'd mentioned about the centurion's faith is that it ultimately brings glory to God. Jesus says the centurion's faith is greater than all the faith expressed in Israel. This story is shared both in Matthew and Luke, and yet the centurion's name is never mentioned. His faith is about healing his servant. His faith is about revering God. His faith is not about what he can get for himself or making a name for himself. How many times have we seen faith as a tool for getting things, getting us salvation, getting us healing, getting us a miracle? Faith is about giving God glory. Does your faith give God glory? Well, the centurion shows us that character matters. When life gets bumpy, bumpy, his character spills out and shines the glory of God. The centurion's character is marked by his keen understanding of authority, his humbleness, and his faith. And I want to end with a quote about faith that I believe rings true for the centurion. 
A little faith will bring your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Do you have a faith that's bringing heaven here to your soul, here to this earth? should. Heavenly Father, life has gotten bumpy for us all. Help us to shine forth with character that brings heaven to earth and blesses those around us. Help us to understand and act with the authority that you have given us. Help us to live humbly and help us to live with faith that blesses others and brings glory to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.